at the foot of Federal Hill in Baltimore, Maryland, in a neighborhood of sensible stone and brick buildings, stands a glittering temple to intuition and art. With circular walls covered in mirrored mosaics and surrounded by unusual works of art, like a cosmic galaxy egg and a giant whirligig, the American Visionary Art Museum is hard to miss. A monument to outsider art, the creative spirit, and the search for truth, this place came out of the singular vision of Rebecca Alban Hofberger. I'm here at the museum to ask Rebecca about visionary art and her process for crafting one-of-a-kind shows that bring together art, science, literature, and popular culture from around the world. Welcome to Museums in Strange Places. I'm your host, Hannah Hethman, a museum consultant specializing in podcasting for museums. And this is a show for people who love museums, stories, culture, and exploring the world. Museums are the keepers of our history and culture, but they are also reflections of who we are now. In each season of this podcast, I explore a different country, state, or region through its museums. In season one, I traveled around Iceland, and now I'm visiting the museums of Maryland to discover how they reflect and shape this state's unique identity. This episode is sponsored by the Lindhurst Group. I'm Rebecca Alban Hofberger, and I'm the founder uh, and director and envisioner, I guess you'd say, of the American Visionary Art Museum here in the heart of Baltimore, Maryland. I'm also the principal curator, and since we opened in November at Thanksgiving in 1995, I've picked every exhibition that we've had, the whole theme, the feel of it, etc. The museum defines visionary art as art produced by self-taught individuals, usually without formal training, whose works arise from an innate personal vision that revels foremost in the creative act itself. This can be hard to conceptualize out of context, so Rebecca gives me a more detailed introduction. So the way we define visionary art and the way that the National Endowment for the Arts differentiates it from, uh, from folk art is folk art is defined as that which is learned at the knee in some sort of tradition whether it's a way, a style from your subculture, like the Amish making hex signs in a certain way, doesn't mean that there won't be some brilliant one-off quilts, but it still comes from the sense of tradition. But my favorite visionary artist may not even think of what they do as art. They may not think of themselves as artists, but they're as serious as can be about getting up every morning and trying to build a utopia in their backyard some backyard garden of Eden. Um, so what we're looking for is largely intuitive artistry. But more than just that, what we're fascinated by here at the American Visionary Art Museum is the role intuition plays in creative invention of all sort. You know, the kind of eureka, aha, that comes through dreams or when you're in the shower and they maybe will bring forth a cure for AIDS, or as Puccini, who swore up and down that he never wrote himself one note of Madame Butterfly, that it was downloaded to him by God. You know, you hear this with uh, people who compose music often, that it, it, that that the the muse is given to them in a way that's not by going to art school and, you know, being aware of what's selling and what's hot. So what I'd like to, you know, say about our museum in general is what we're interested is in muse, is the heart of inspiration, not just about the things, the artifact, the objects. Because if you're primarily about things and you're aware of, oh, this is hot now or what they've sold in previous markets, then you're a repository for dead things. You're a mausoleum. 
But if you're truly a museum, you're all about the inspiration and you're about communicating that to everybody who walks in of all ages and finding a way for them to digest something so delicious that it will be inspirational to them in their lives. And so from the very beginning, it's been this uh, dance of love. You know, one of my favorite things that's up in bold letters in our permanent collection is what Vincent van Gogh wrote to his brother Theo in a letter. He wrote letters that were as beautiful as his art. And he wrote, The more I think, the more I feel that there is nothing more truly artistic than to love people. I think that it's too late in this world just to be about things. I mean, there are amazing artifacts all over the world. But what could be more amazing than nature itself, you know? So this is a museum that focuses on human nature and potential. But it also showcases what it is to be human, kind of glory, and then warts and all. I love the originality of museums that spring from one person's passion and imagination. Many times, these museums have a homemade quality about them. But the American Visionary Art Museum is different. It's an absolutely stunning museum by any measurement, with grand architectural features and warm professional staff to welcome you. But it's also more than that. As I talk with Rebecca, I realize that Like so many of the artworks contained in the museum, this place is her great living masterpiece, a physical extension of herself and her seemingly infinite fount of inspiration. Uh, When I get my ideas, they usually come fully formed. They don't come like incremental. So I was already, um, had for 20 years at that point, been a development um, director. So I knew how to raise money, how to structure things. And I could never raise money for anything I didn't really believe in. So I was working for five and a half years for the Department of Psychiatry at Sinai Hospital, um, helping um, grow businesses and job training opportunities and life skill building for people who were what was called deinstitutionalized when they started closing all the large mental hospitals. And if uh, people had to relearn how to live, how to write checks, how to get a little job, you know, um, and life skills. And a lot of them were so high-functioning, but they didn't negotiate this world very well. And I I really thought a lot about what gets people branded with the label mental illness. And, you know, I realized that we had to come up with another more expansive definition for a worthwhile life. So if you read our seven education goals, number one is expand the definition of a worthwhile life. Because I had had an amazing life before. And I had met people who went to Harvard, played great tennis, made a lot of money, looked good, smelled good, mm-hmm. but who were like, who left a trail of misery all around them. And yet they would never get a diagnosis. Then I saw people who were so fragile, but so kind, so loving, never hurt anyone, but they just weren't good at negotiating life. And they had this, you know, branding, you know, on them. So the the experiences of what could we all agree on? Uh, was important. The seven education goals of the American Visionary Art Museum. One, expand the definition of a worthwhile life. Two, engender respect for and delight in the gifts of others. Three, increase awareness of the wide variety of choices available in life for all, particularly students. Four, Encourage each individual to build upon his or her own special knowledge and inner strengths. Five, promote the use of innate intelligence, intuition, self-exploration, and creative self-reliance. Six, confirm the great hunger for finding out just what each of us can do best in our own voice at any age. Seven, empower the individual to choose to do that something really, really well. The uh, museum industry, when I first started, was very oriented to kind of cognoscenti and market and what was, you know, the contemporary 
you know, art museum and, uh, you know, values, material values. So this was not. And at first, people looked at our education goals, and I think they went, ugh, how spiritual, like, ugh, you know, like, what, is, what, what could that? And now, like, I think kind of the industry matured because a lot of what we've been doing has really been adopted in many ways by other, other kinds of museums. When Rebecca started the grassroots movement to create this museum in 1989, she was an outsider among traditionally educated museum directors, collectors, and curators. But it's clear that the American Visionary Art Museum could never have been created by an insider who played by the rules. Along with her partner, Leroy Hofberger, an expressionist art collector and philanthropist, Rebecca rallied people around the world in support of the project and raised the money needed to create the museum. It was a lean operation for many years. Leroy had to sell off his collection in order to reach the final goal. Rebecca didn't take a salary for 13 years, going through her life savings in the quest to realize her vision. For her, it has been, and remains, a labor of love. I want to take a quick break here to talk about this episode's sponsor, the Lindhurst Group. Are you trying to build stronger communities through your history organization or museum? Do you wonder if your organization is working as efficiently as possible? Bob Beatty and the Lindhurst Group can help with organizational assessments and in-depth strategic planning. I've known Bob for a few years now, and I've long been impressed by his passion for our field and commitment to making it stronger. If you need help with your history organization, I highly recommend visiting lindhurstgroup.org. That's L-Y-N-D-H-U-R-S-T group.org to learn more about how Bob Beatty and the Lindhurst Group can make your institution the asset your community wants and needs. Remember those glittering exterior walls I mentioned? Like most aspects of the museum, they aren't just a pretty thing to look at. They are part of what Rebecca refers to as the layers and layers of good built into the museum. One layer of good are the three employees hired directly from a local homeless shelter in the museum's early years. They all own their own homes today. The walls themselves have been spreading goodness for 14 years. Uh, so I, I'm really proud that uh, our glittering walls are named after uh, really a co-founder, Leroy Hofberger, who has passed away now. And people think, oh, did Gaudi come to Baltimore? You know, they're so beautiful. And they go from uh, the sunset to the moonrise to the aurora borealis at three stories, all in swirls of mirroring crystals to, uh, again, another sunrise, you know. And um, they're the largest apprenticeship program for incarcerated teenagers. They began with youth at risk from our, our nearby high school that had a 72% dropout rate, mm. one of the worst in the countries. But then they became a digital harbor and they, they, they took out their shop. So we, we turned to the incarcerated kids who we have loved working with, who, get, who earn through their work on the panels lifetime membership here at the museum. The mosaics covering the main building are a shining example, literally, of the museum's fourth education goal. Increase awareness of the wide variety of choices available in life for all, particularly students. The mirrored mosaics will stop you in your tracks as you approach the museum. On the sunny summer day of my visit, the reflected sun is so bright that I am unable to look directly at the building. This public work of art began in 2001 and was completed in 2015. The beauty of these walls grabs your attention. And once you are paying attention, they become a chance for the museum to share the tragic news that nearly 90% of the teens serving prison time in Baltimore City are doing so for nonviolent crimes. One, two, one, two.
whether you're a science museum or a natural history museum or an art museum or a technology museum, we're all about the story. That's what we do. We're storytellers. The museum changes its temporary exhibit about once a year. For each of these shows, as they call them, Rebecca picks a grand, non-object-oriented theme, something that has always inspired or bedeviled human beings, something the philosophers have weighed in on, something that scientists and social justice advocates have spoken about, and most importantly, something that has inspired amazing art. The art serves as the visual anchor for exhibits that are far more than simply objects on display. These shows are more than exhibits. They are experiences that change you, leaving you a little different, a little wiser at the end. It helps us uh, to unify both the people who walk in our door to be on the same page of, oh, you know, like uh, last year's show was called Yum, the (laughs) history, fantasy, and future of food. And it was inspired when I understood that we're supposed to be a planet of another 2 billion people, 2 billion with a B, in just 30 years. And so I was thinking, oh my gosh, if we don't start thinking now like visionaries about, you know, there will be more uh, like have than have nots on the food, you know, uh, and uh, being a person getting older now, I'm thinking, oh, I don't want to be soil and green, you know, (laughs) for the next generation for their sake as well, you know. I had been down to uh, visit into Brazil, and I was talking with ethnobotanists, and they were saying now that we all eat quinoa, you know, or quinoa, whatever you would say, the grain from Peru that was for hundreds of years the staple food of those people. They can't afford it because it's all Mm. for export. So what moved in? The, you know, really cheap McDonald's. So the quality of their cuisine has gone down. We're now eating that, but they can't because of that. So it's a very interesting dance. I was looking at the scientists who were like Hervé Thys, the great kind of visionary who was the uh, inventor of micro um, gastronomy uh, and to extracting the nutrients at the source instead of trucking around vegetables that would rot in trucks and most of it would get thrown out before it reached source. And uh, But then we had, you know, we, tr- we looked at ways to make food very personal playful aspects, you know, the serious, what's happening with the bees and all the latest facts. And they have to be, above all, kind of visually a feast for people when they walk in. Because then you have them, and you have them learning more than about objects. And the way we write our bios is so that uh, it feels like you're introducing a really good friend. The biographies that accompany each piece of art in the museum aren't your usual description of materials, locations, and schools of practice. They are stories about humans and the mystery of inspiration. I want to share one description in particular, the biography that accompanies Applewood Figure, a striking, somber carved figure in the museum's permanent collection. I saw the sculpture and read about its anonymous carver on my first visit to the museum four years ago, and it's stuck with me ever since. Here's the biography. This lone figure was carved from a single tree trunk. It was created as a self-portrait by a British mental patient who had a distinctive concave chest from years of tuberculosis. His doctor remembered that he took no interest in making art until he encountered a fallen apple tree during a walk on the hospital grounds and asked for help in dragging it indoors and with getting simple carving tools. For a month, he whittled the wood down to this figure. The artist, in his 30s, committed suicide about two years after leaving the hospital. This applewood figure is his only known work of art. I find that so many museums write in museumese. And oh gosh, yes. it's, it's really, for me, it's masturbatic, you know, because <laughs> it's, it's like they're so used with that training to write for their peers instead of realizing who are we serving with our museums, who's walking in the doors. And without dumbing down, Einstein said something so important that we take to heart. He said that 
If you really understand something, no matter how complex, you should be able to explain it to a six-year-old. So this is a museum that has tackled very complex subjects and thought about, well, what are those key factoids that you can present that are really understandable by everybody? And um, we've had so much positive um, feedback from people who say, I never read text panels when I go to museums, but I read every word here or every word of our bios, you know. And some people will even say, oh, I even love the bios, the stories, you know, more than the art, you know. And I, that makes me sad because we, we work very hard to have kind of <laughs> uh, fabulous things. But, you know, different people relate to different things. And uh, what we try very hard here is to do the most beautiful, complete, immersive in any one subject exhibitions. So when you come out, even if you thought you were on one side of something, you have it really heard the other. Um, when I did an exhibition on character, because I thought that's what we should all care about, I called it race, class, and gender. Three things that contribute zero to character because being a schmuck is an equal opportunity for everybody. <laughs> right? And people love the show, you know. And there was a lot of facts in it, but I did an essay on the uh, vetted by top scientist um, on gender. And I had two on separate occasions during the 11 months, fundamentalist women mm. come to me in tears and apologize. They said they had no idea. They had no idea of the facts of, of it not just being kind of gay or straight, you know, wow. that, like how complex... And throughout time, not just in like these sinful times, but throughout history, how many people were born hermaphrodite with indefinite genitalia. And we live in an age where in America, you know, with whatever surgeons on call, when that happens, and it happens, uh, you know, pretty mathematically regularly, uh, it's kind of like who's ever on call. Uh, you know, they've got a tennis game that afternoon. What is surgically easy enough for them to do? And it's it has nothing to do with the soul or the person. And so we talked about Kleinfelder syndrome and all these rare gender identification that they are called disorders, but facts of life, I guess. And always brought it back to what it is to be a, a human being, you know, that that shouldn't matter. And people really got the message. I'm excited right now because I'm working on all of our large thematic shows uh, stay up for 11 months and they're all wholly original. And this one, I decided to do the theme, uh, parenting and art without a manual. Mm. And it's the, the kind of the good, the bad, the horrific and the sublime of parenting. But did I think that a parenting and what is happening at our borders mm. with the separation of children? And there's a huge emphasis in our parenting show on uh, what happens from zero to five. Like those are such impactful years. The, the bonding they have with parents. And so I'm, I'm so excited that we can just put from, I've harnessed like the best uh, neuroscientists, you know, who are really know what's going on in the little, those little brains, um, so that there's going to be so much great information for people woven into the most beautiful artistic exhibition. It's right at the right time when it's needed. You know, it's it's the whole realm of this complex art that is really an intuitive one. And when when I said an art without a manual, people go, "Oh my God, that's so true." You know, because you, you know you're kind of like uh, unless you had a lot of siblings to raise when you were little, you, everyone is always surprised. You know, by and plus each child is so different. It's not like one size fits all. You know, so it's wonderful to posture it as a creative art and. One of the things I'm excited about is that it, it's so true to our seven education goals because one of the, the things is um, I came across, um, it was on 60 Minutes years ago, where there were two developmentally disabled adults who were married, had little good jobs, you know, they had a little apartment, and the wife became pregnant, and they had this baby they adored. But the boy was not only of normal intelligence, he was brilliant. And so they couldn't help him with his homework like past the third grade. But they were always in his corner. And he went on to get full scholarship at the Ivy Leagues. And they were wonderful parents. And he was never embarrassed by them. 
And it was this beautiful relationship. And so they didn't have a lot of money. They had very modest education. But they had something that made them very good parents that is kind of this democratic ideal accessible to all. But um, you could have someone, a couple, both went to Harvard, play great tennis, make a lot of money, smell good, look good, you know, all these things that we value, and they could be the crappiest parents in the world. And that's the very beautiful art that is, it is something that comes from each of us that is accessible for each one of us to perhaps excel at. And it has, doesn't have to do with the things that we think, oh, if only I had you know, won the lottery, then I could be a great parent or something. No, it's like, maybe that would even make you a worse pres- you know, parent. You know, so it's, it's going to be a wonderful healing opportunity to again you know, lasso our, our uh, audience. Museums collect art. Their curators go out into the world, choose pieces that represent the best of the greater field. The Visionary Art Museum seems to be the opposite. Rebecca is like a magnet. She and the museum draw in thinkers and speakers and painters, sculptors and collectors. As she gathers the scientific facts, literary quotes, and pieces of art that interest her, she shapes them into an experience that challenges the mind and the eye in ways that the individual pieces in each exhibit simply cannot, no matter how incredible each one is on its own. And if you had attended every exhibition from The Tree of Life to Wind in My Hair to Love, Error, and Eros, Love, Profane, and Divine, um, you know, all these, these big-themed works... It's, you'd have almost like a little PhD in life. You know, it's really amazing what, and, and a lot of that was because all my life I would, I was like a little sponge for anything, uh, I thought was fascinating or beautiful. And again, I'm, I'm a real science geek because for me, a lot of the creativity in, from, that emerges from human beings is in figuring out how to do better, you know, whether it be in science or even in social science, you know. And so I would take, you know, beautiful thoughts. And I want to tell everybody that if they're in a, a dentist office and they're reading a magazine and they see something inspirational and you're going to at some point in your life use it, yes, you have God's blessing to tear it out <laughs> and put it in your pocket and take it home. And so I would have oh, like everything. I was very tuned all my life to what was soul fuel. And so um, the exhibition and the themes have really afforded that opportunity to really mine the most beautiful thoughts and important understandings and playful ones. Because sometimes, you know, the the things you uncover are, are very dark and you can't just have an exhibition full of only tragic stuff or else people can't, they can't take it. The medicine doesn't go down. You have to have a little sugar, you know. We have a formula called the Surefire Recipe for how each show evolves and is curated. The Surefire Recipe for presenting globally relevant, wildly successful mega exhibitions each year. One, take one grand spirited theme that has inspired or bedeviled humankind from the get-go. Two, add the works of the world's best self-taught artists known and first-timers that have wrestled in their lives and art with some key aspect of the theme. Three, spice the exhibition text with insightful quotes, lyrics, 
factoids and humor on diverse aspects of that same exhibition theme, interweaving timeless global wisdoms. Four, integrate key historic, scientific, and social justice underpinnings, along with curriculum guides, K-12 student programs, hands-on art workshops, salons, and conferences based on exhibition themes. Five, call up anyone appropriate to the theme we have long admired and invite them to come and take part in some way that is a new delight to them too. Six, top with community-based programming that makes a difference. Never bore and chant. Seven, stay true at all times to AVAM's seven founding education goals, definition of art, definition of a visionary, and founding mission statement. So it's, again, this is a museum that looks at that role of intuition in its influence on uh, creativity of all sort. And as a result, it gives us a wider birth to talk about the the creative spirit in in a very palpable way. And, you know, just the engineers and uh, the different kinds of people who have come and felt such a part of this. For example, for the food show, we honored Carrie Fowler, the guy who created up in Norway, the the seed vault, Mm -hmm. so that if there's nuclear war, like there's over 22,000 species of tomatoes, because only about 10 to 15 of them are commercially developed because they travel well in the back of a truck and don't bruise as easily and all sorts of, and they look red, you know, and they're disease resistant, you know, that, that we, we list, lose out on so many subtle flavors. So I thought, my gosh, that's, that's like the greatest museum I can imagine to conserve, you know, what can never be replicated, the, uh, the DNA of, of all these species that in the abundance of earth, you know, was given to us. So we honor Carrie Fowler. So every year we, we look at honoring, whether it's Julian Bond, when we're doing uh, an exhibition with the theme on life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. We honored the great civil rights activist, uh, Julian Bond, and his wife, Pam Horowitz. For me, creative acts of social justice are the supremely greatest uh, application of creativity, because to make lasting and real social change, you have to be fiercely creative and one-pointed. It takes everything that a great work of art, be it a, a, a new play or a symphony or a great sculpture would, would need. You have to really have all the, your, your creative fires, you know, firing. So is it my goal that when people come here to go, oh boy, Mr. Imagination uses uh, bottle caps. I could use bottle caps too. You know, if it, if that's their their thing, you know, fine. But it's uh, I'm I'm hoping they they find their voice to be more their authentic self. The phone rings and Rebecca pauses our conversation to talk to a potential donor. It's clear she never tires of talking about the work. She waxes poetic on the phone about the upcoming show and the art and science that visitors will be able to enjoy when it opens. I use the pause in our conversation to change the subject to the current exhibit, The Great Mystery Show. Rebecca and I head out into the lively, noisy galleries where she gives me a tour of her favorite elements of the show. Uh, so we have the playful things. We're sitting here and we're, you know, since our theme is The Great Mystery Show, we begin down the ramp as you want to enter in past the admissions desk with the personal secrets, all anonymous, collected by Frank Warren of The Great Post Secret Project. Frank Warren's post secrets line the wall of the museum entrance. Like most of my friends, I was obsessed with them in high school. At the end of the hall, a large panel of text introduces visitors to the theme. 
Welcome, all ye passionately curious. The great mystery show beckons you, each the star of your own personal mystery show, to our American Visionary Art Museum's newest, wholly original art exhibition. From psychics to physicists, the great mystery show artfully peels away the veil of the secret power behind the great art, science, and pursuit of the sacred. One part lively funhouse, two parts cosmic dream lab. The great mystery show weaves the creative investigations of 44 artists, research scientists, astronauts, mystics, and philosophers into one grand scale exploration of mystery that's 100% devoted to inspiring that ever questioning sleuth for the truth in each of us. No alternative facts here, just a wildly visual exaltation of the strangeness and wonder of life itself. And then, of course, I couldn't think of having an exhibition about mystery without doing a salute to Edward Gorey, who for me is the heart and soul in our contemporary world, even though he often featured Victorian uh, characters. When you were a little girl, Hannah, did you ever have the book Gashley Crumb Tinies? I didn't, but I love it as an adult. <laughs> Well, you know, it was my children's favorite book and childhood book, a little, you know, a little noir humor, you know. But, um, you know, it's A is for Amy, who fell down the stairs. B is for Basil, assaulted by bears. Uh, Evergory, uh did the beginning of Masterpiece Mystery Theater, things like that. So people know his, his look, right? And what's... Uh, really great is to be able to blow up uh, his gastric crumb tinies. Tinies being the operative word from the Victorian era for children. This is an artist that I met actually in Brazil who's from Australia, who had never ever had one show in his whole life. And he, uh, <clears throat> his wife ran out off with Native Americans who were doing an indigenous people's tour of Australia, leaving him with three little children under five. And um, so we have this first art show he ever had in his life. And this is all colored pencil work. He's a big, you know, surfer dude at 65, and he's also done a lot of hallucinogenics in pursuit of the <laughs> life's music uh, uh, um, mystery. So we go in here. I don't use any hallucinogens, but um, I know that this is uh, the DMT molecule, which is uh, a chandelier made by a local artist named Eric Wanvir, uh, and it is uh, a chandelier in a smaller gallery devoted to the mystery as uh, of consciousness, uh, whether it's Plato's, you know, understanding of consciousness and life and death, or a biological insight into what do we mean when we say I, right? Uh, so because the human body actually is far outnumbered in human cells next to parasitical cells that we are like the host planet for as we walk around. Here's the uh, late, uh, well-known uh, visionary artist who was, you know, kind of a little scientist, alchemist in his own way, thought he was a UFO abductee, uh, uh, had a doctor look at something, an x-ray of his head, and was surprised. He said, gee, were you, did you have shrapnel? Were you in a war or, or a car accident? He said, no. And so he's convinced it was an alien implant. So we have his x-ray there. And what else do we have? Well, uh, artist Paul Laffley was a diabetic who hurt his leg, didn't take care of it, had to have it, his leg amputated. But being a creative person, he didn't want people to look at him and think, oh, I'm so sorry, you know, oh, you're handicapped or whatever. So he said, I'm very proud to be a Leo. So he got his good friend Stan Winston to do a, pro who did all the, the costumes for Star Wars, to do a prosthetic uh, a lion's leg, looking exactly like a real lion's leg. And he very proudly wore it wherever he went uh, so that people would smile 
instead of think, oh, poor Paul. And, you know, it's that, that alchemy, that creativity that's applied to all aspects of their lives, not just objects that people make. Um, I have had some of my best meals ever were at the homes of visionary hermit artists who, who are foragers. And I'm telling you, it's better than anything I've had at five-star restaurants, you know. I just have great respect for all the manifestations of creativity that, that people can evidence. This is a painting that came to us very mysteriously from um, Ingo Swann, who was not a Catholic, but he wrote a book on the 22 major apparitions of Mary, Mother Mary, like Fatima and Lourdes, because he was so fascinated with how often the phenomena would parallel UFO kind of sightings and uh, atmospheric amazing things witnessed by thousands. Ingo Swann's art is part of the museum's permanent collection. But during his life, he was best known as a pioneer in the field of remote viewing, which uses extrasensory perception to see distant locations using only the mind. He was so successful that he co-created the Stanford Research Institute of Remote Viewing and the CIA Stargate Project. Among Swan's many accomplishments, he claimed to have sent his consciousness to Jupiter before the arrival of NASA's Voyager satellite. Maybe that sounds crazy, but he did accurately describe many features of the planet, including Jupiter's rings, which hadn't yet been discovered. So what we did here was juxtapose um, uh, uh, photographs of classical paintings. This is from 1710, the Baptism of Christ. It's in the uh, Fitzwilliam um, Museum, and you see what looks for all intents and purposes, like a UFO, right? It does. Oh, my gosh, it totally does. And let me show you another one that's so interesting. Over here, you have, um, well, here you have the Annunciation. This is even earlier, 1486. Look at this. Yes. And these are not doctored. I mean, this is, these have been in museums for, you know, centuries now. And this one is very well known, the Madonna and Child in Palacio Vecchio in, um, in Italy. And you see, you know, um, a Madonna and a child with another cherub looking after it. But what in the background, you find a shepherd and his dog totally ignoring Mother Mary and looking up in the sky. When you blow it up, you can see what, what are they looking at? A UFO. What looks like a UFO. (laughs) Ostensibly, to my eyes, is a shining, circular, flying object. So what did we do? We we did a a free conference on two views of heaven uh, with top scientists from Goddard and the Hubble Space Telescope that we've collaborated a lot with, free to everybody, plus a theological view, a spiritual view of heaven. And the head uh, astronomer is a Catholic priest for the Vatican. And he actually wrote a book called I Would Baptize an Alien If He Asked Me To. <laughs> you know, but these, this is an MIT, you know, trained astrophysicist. So it was very interesting to bring in these world-class speakers and again tell them in the words of, of Einstein, you know, you got to put it in plain language, your best, it most, what excites you about your work, and then anybody can ask questions. So it's a very exciting compliment to fill out every show that we do. And we had kind of a record crowd for that. So I knew uh, when I was constructing this exhibition, I knew uh, the great mystery show would have uh, would have a section called the great um, the mystery of the human heart, because I was aware of uh, several transplant scientists uh, who were not believers in anything spiritual, but it happened too often that their recipients of their heart transplants would would have memories or understandings, knowledge of their donors that they could not explain, very specific 
And so it happened so much that they started saying, well, it must be something to it, that the heart we gave them of someone else somehow conveyed something of the personality. But then I'm reading all the scientific journals, and the thing I got so excited about, I, I read that in Queensland, Australia, they discovered only a few years ago uh, that our, all of our human hearts have taste bud receptors, not for sweet, not for salty, only for bitterness. And they went, what are these doing in the heart? And they said, you know, when you are full of anger or grief or rage or jealousy, the negative stressful emotions, our bodily fluids become slightly more acidic. The pH changes and the heart tastes it and clenches. So for years, they never understood when, um, you know, when someone would die of uh, broken hearted syndrome when they had been perfectly healthy before and they would do an autopsy and they would not find any um, any uh, blockage to the you know the the heart um, they couldn't understand why the heart was suddenly worn out now they know so when Dr. Martin Luther King says hatred is a poison we ingest hoping to hurt the other fella it's absolutely true going to walk through our, our thing about the mystery of the crazy cat woman. So come into this room that's really uh, um, dedicated with three women who are master bead artists. And I want to first take you to this one. Um, this is by, works by Nancy Josephson, who I've shown a good deal. And she is an American-born woman who spent 30 years studying to be a, an initiated voodoo princess, uh, priestess in Haiti. And uh, this is Legba, the character within the Haitian belief that holds the key between this world and the next. And you can see all his hair and everything is all out of, you know, hundreds and hundreds of keys. So we, we begin here with uh, the her three principal deities, life-size represented. And there's graveyard dirt in this one and horns and bones and all the things of the earth. Rebecca encourages me to look closely at three life-size beaded female deities and the three beaded busts positioned around them. The third bust is made up of entirely white beads, except for thin spirals of gold that move indiscriminately across the chest, neck, lips, nose, and forehead of the figure. Do you know the, the Japanese concept of wabi-sabi? If you have like this gorgeous little bowl that's been in your family for years and it's gotten broken, instead of just throwing it away and being upset, you repair it carefully, lovingly with gold, real thin line of gold to put all the pieces back together. And this piece, this uh, deity, is that as human beings, all of us will be broken. That's just what it is. You, none of us will escape that. If you live long in life, uh, enough in life, something will come to really break you. But that's not a punishment. What we can do with that brokenness is through uh, the empathy that it brings us for the suffering of others, through our own suffering, we can mend ourselves with that pure gold and we become more valuable as human beings because we went through the experience of the brokenness. And I think that's a really healing lesson for everybody who walks in here. And they couldn't have been done more beautifully. It's gorgeous. Yeah. When Rebecca talks about the museum, she speaks about it like an artist speaks about their work. In fact, I don't think it's a stretch to say she is a visionary artist and that the American Visionary Art Museum is her ongoing masterpiece, started in a moment of inspiration and sustained through an unceasing passion to discover the secrets of the universe and humanity. Rebecca meets the museum's definition of visionary artist, a self-taught individual without formal training in the museum field whose exhibits arise from an innate personal vision that revels foremost in the creative act itself. We probably need more people like Rebecca in this world, and we definitely need more places like the American Visionary Art Museum.
Thanks for joining me on this adventure as I explore Maryland's museums. Today's episode was sponsored by the Lindhurst Group. The featured songs in this episode are by the preschoolers from the compilation album Towson Glen Arm Freakouts, 1992-1999. to The album is a testament to the teen avant-garde scene that thrived on the outskirts of Baltimore, Maryland, in and around the towns of suburban Towson and rural Glen Arm. All proceeds from the sale of the album go to the charities Music for More and Grassroots Crisis. You can find a link to the album, along with pictures and more information about the museum, on my website, hethman.com. If you enjoy museums in strange places, please help me keep it going by leaving a review on iTunes or sharing this episode with a friend. Interested in starting a podcast at your organization? Check out my new book, Your Museum Needs a Podcast, a step-by-step guide to podcasting on a budget for museums, history organizations, and cultural nonprofits. Your Museum Needs a Podcast is available on Amazon as an ebook, paperback, and audible audiobook. A is for Amy who fell down the stairs. B is for Basil assaulted by bears. C is for Clara who wasted away. D is for Desmond thrown out of a sleigh. E is for Ernest who choked on a peach. F is for Fanny sucked dry by a leech. G is for George smothered under a rug. H is for Hector done in by a thug. I is for Ida who drowned in a lake. J is for James who took lie by mistake. K is for Kate who was struck with an axe. L is for Leo who swallowed some tax. M is for Maud who was swept out to sea. N is for Neville who died of ennui. O is for Olive run through with an oar. P is for Prue who trampled flat in a brawl. Q is for Quentin who sank in a mire. R is for Rhoda consumed by a fire. S is for Susan who perished of fits. T is for Titus who flew into pits. U is for Una who slipped down a drain. V is for Victor squashed under a train. W is for Winnie embedded in ice. X is for Xerxes devoured by mice. Y is for Yorick, whose head was knocked in. Z is for Zilla, who drank too much gin. The end.